as podcast partner, we're pleased to be able to bring you a selection of the sessions from the festival. In this one, Colin McLaren and Michael Corita draw from their real-life experiences as an undercover detective and private investigator, respectively, and discuss their new crime fiction. This session that we've dubbed Twists and Turns. As many of you hopefully know, my name is Dixie Marshall. I'm the senior newsreader here at Channel 9 in Perth. What some of you might not know, however, is that for many years I was a sports reporter and uh, for many years before that I was a crime reporter. So this afternoon's session was, uh, was my pick of the festival. I hope you enjoy it. The session would probably be better dubbed Cute Chicks, Ugly Blokes and Cops <laughs> or Crime and all that sordid, evil, bloody stuff. We could just go on and on. If you ever wondered what sort of a mind comes up with sophisticated, modern-day, thoughtful crime writing, well, you're about to find out. Our guests, Colin and Michael, have drawn from their real-life experiences as an undercover detective and a private investigator to write some terrific stories. And this afternoon, we get to discuss this sort of new wave of crime fiction. The way I see it going, and let me give you the tip, I've never done anything like this. The boys are leading me. Um, I've never done a, a writer's festival before, so it could all turn bear shape. Let me give you the tip. Um, the way I see it going, though, and interrupt us at any point that you think uh, you could do it better, because we're open to ideas, is that I just kind of thought we'd have a bit of a yak to the fellas first, hear some of their the background to their stories, and then open it up. I've got plenty of questions, but I'm sure you will as well. So hopefully that's, uh, that's how it will work. Where I want to know sort of where they got the courage and the skill to write some of this stuff down. Where did the ideas come from? And then, as I say, I'll give... Uh, maybe if you've got some time left over after hearing from me, we'll hear from you. We've only got an hour, so uh, I want to get on with the show. Michael is here to talk about his novel... The Silent Hours. He became the youngest winner of the annual PI Writers of America first best first PI uh, novel contest. He was just 20 when he wrote his winning novel Tonight I Said Goodbye, which went on to earn an Edgar nomination as the best first novel. Michael's second and third Lincoln Perry novels were Sorrow Anthem and A Welcome Grave. Fantastic names. Uh, Michael is still, as you can see, in his 20, uh, 20s and lives... can't even say it, let alone think about it, that someone so talented could be so young. Um, he lives in Bloomington in Indiana. He is, as well, an award-winning newspaper reporter and also works part-time as a PI for one of Indiana's only certified legal investigators. Please welcome Michael Cordia. Thank you. So, you tell us a bit about yourself. I like hearing you talk about me. It's <laughs> much more flattering. Um, I think <laughs> you really covered the basics. But The Silent Hour, my most recent release in, uh, in Australia, is the fourth in uh, the Lincoln Perry series. And um, Lincoln is a private investigator. As Dixie mentioned, um, I do have some experience in that field. Um, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to share the stage today with, with Colin because there are different levels of experience 
in, uh, in law enforcement and detection. And uh, my level is down here, and uh, Collins is somewhere up in the stratosphere. Um, but it certainly you know, did inform the work, and if nothing else, it was an opportunity to get paid for research. Um, so that was good. You know, usually you just have to do that on your own time and your own dime. Um, I also benefited immensely, I think, from my time as a journalist in that um, I worked, with, uh, much, much like you, I've worked with a little bit of every beat from sports to crime to uh, features in a column. And the opportunity to deal with a really diverse group of people, um, a really wide range of stories and, and skill sets is the best possible thing for a novelist. Everything is grist for the mill. Um, I, I really am of the belief that nothing is wasted on a writer. Um, at least that's what I tell myself on really bad days. I, I, I say, well, this can inform a really bad day chapter of a book sometime. Um, <laughs> so the, yeah, that's, that's, that's my background. And I, I don't want to get too uh, redundant here because you covered it so well. <laughs> and you sounded so special when I talked about it, um, but which is true, clearly. Uh, it's now my pleasure to introduce Colin. He was one of Australia's most experienced task force detectives and investigated the Walsh Street murders, the Mr Cruel kidnappings and the NCA bombing and murder. After his encounter with the Mafia, Colin lectured at the detective training school. Since retiring from the Victoria Police, Colin has opened a luxury Italian villa in rural Victoria. Geez, that'd be hard. He divides his time between Italy and Australia, clearly. The books are making a packet. He writes constantly. Either that or he was a corrupt <laughs> cop. <There's... laughs> and has penned three books and two screenplays to speak about infiltration, the true story of the man who cracked the mafia and the novel On the Run. Please welcome Colin McLaren. Okay, so tell us about you. That's not that I haven't already said. Yeah, publishers are fantastic people. The man that cracked the mafia. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think there's a man or a police department out there that'll ever do that, but anyway. Um, I started life in the 50s and uh, was born in a dirt block of land uh, out in sort of country Victoria. We were miserably poor and uh, my father was probably an original dole bludger. A very violent man and um, we uh, travelled through life as a, as a family until the, the age of 16 when uh, we all sort of went in our own directions. And uh, so I guess I come from Struggle Town. The rest is in the book. Um, well, at least Infiltration, the first book. Um, I, I always say I had a very rich upbringing and uh, the other day um, um, Deborah from the Nine, nine team, Deborah uh, Kennedy, Kennedy correct, yeah. was very generous by saying those first couple of chapters were very Frank McCourt, so I'll never forget that was actually said to me. Um, it was a rich up, upbringing and uh, I think it served me very, very well for a police career because you can see both sides of the street and understand, I guess, an angry man or... A, somebody who, who wants to be king for a day and probably is just a no-hoper. So I, I had a good career in almost 20 years through the 80s and 90s and the, the tough times. It's tough still, but uh, I, th I think the administration or the management's a little bit different these days. And um, by the time I, I gave it all away, and I gave it all away because I ticked all my boxes and I'd, I'd done enough and uh, I'd, I, there was nothing I wanted to do and I'd never look back. 
And then I, but I had a dream to pull corks out of Sangiovese bottles and open my own Italian villa. And I'm gladly doing that and taking tours to Italy as well. And uh, I'm doing what I want to do now. And uh, I guess uh, it's, a good, it's a good time for me. And uh, along that path, I've help, had one partner um, sharing most of it, certainly um, the last 30-odd years of it. And that's been my daughter as a single parent. Um, she's been a great part of my, my life. And she's uh, featured throughout the book. And I wouldn't have written the book without featuring her. She's a, a, a stunning individual. Uh, I'm very, very proud of her. So she, she features, um, has always featured through my life since I was 19. And um, now I'm just uh, discovering that I can write, and so, so my publisher tells me. And, and I just finished uh, last week uh, the proofreading of my third book, due out uh, in a couple of few months' time. So I'm, I'm enjoying it enormously, and whilst I'm, I, I take those lovely comments from Michael before about experience, I, I guess... Um, I've only just got his book yesterday, uh, sorry, on Friday, and, and I think I can learn from that young fellow a little bit about prose and how to write properly, so um, I'll, I'll take something off him as well. So I've got a good mix here today, it's fantastic. Michael, tell us, in, in your book, you explore how dangerous the offer of a second chance can be. Tell us about that concept and why you thought it was important. Um, I don't... The... Uh the, the publisher loved the tagline of how dangerous a second chance can be. Um, what I was really, to me, the danger there, it's an issue of rehabilitation. And the danger is, um, do we, in America, um, do we really believe in it in, in the prison system? I was a criminal justice student at Indiana University, and then I spent, um, I, I worked for a private detective for 10 years as a private detective. and. One of the uh, things I saw over and over again was the way the, uh, the sins of the past um, haunt the present lives of those who uh, committed crimes. And in some cases, they, they should. I mean, there are certainly um, truly evil people out there who, who commit truly evil acts. Um, I've also encountered quite a few people who I think are fundamentally good men and women um, from very difficult circumstances and mistakes are made and, and justice is um, delivered, punishment is delivered and then upon parole, upon release, punishment continues to be delivered and um, it's a very difficult situation. Um, one of those, I'm interested in, in anything uh, Dr. Grayling's address earlier this week I thought was, was very interesting. He talked about moral character, and I love that phrase because to me that's the essence of, of what drives me to write. I'm, I'm interested in uh, characters who fall kind of in the gray, um, not the black and the white, the pure crusading hero or the purely evil psychopath um, antagonist in fiction. And I'm interested in those characters who, who commit um, a criminal act and the more you learn about their situation, um, the more perhaps empathy, not sympathy, but empathy you have for that act. And so I became um, somewhat interested in re rehabilitation and uh, recidivism, and particularly new programs uh, that were going on in the States, um, some with very strong results, uh, some with, uh, with, with poor turnouts. Which, which were the ones that worked? Um, you know, some of the, the, the test projects that, that fascinated me um, were 
based on the idea that removing the offender completely from society is possibly the worst thing you can do for a lot of people because what it trains in them every day, what it hammers home in their mind and their psyche is the idea that I no longer belong in society, I am an outsider, and when they are released, they go back with that idea, and then we react with surprise when they return to crime. Um, that doesn't seem to be that much of a surprising concept mm -hmm. to me. So it was really that idea that, that sparked the book. Mark, do you think that, uh, sorry, Colin, do you think that the, um, the justice system in Australia works? Gee, um, no. <laughs> There's only two um, answers, I suppose, but no. Um, I think, th I have a great uh, thought, and I guess this is through my upbringing as well, and, and then um, working as a detective for all those years, and, and I'm thinking, I'm seeing now in my mind's eye, so many of the criminals I worked against or with, or um, I believe a great many of them are not just career criminals, but they're family or generational criminals. Yeah. Um, if you look at the Penninghill family, um, does, most people here would be Australians, I guess. Kath Penninghill gave birth to seven uh, children to seven from seven fathers or seven men and they're all rotten and they're all gangsters and they're all murderers and they're all um, certainly thieves at the lower level but uh, they're all incredibly um, bad individuals. Dennis Bruce Allen. Were they born bad or were they made bad? Well they're environmental and they're generational. Um, they're, they're they come from a really, really bad upbringing where their mother ran brothels and they, they used to run around and collect the money or go and get the drugs at a, you know, as teenagers and see the murders, etc., etc. And there's so many families like that in Australia, if you only look at some of the more infamous crimes, that um, they're born into it. And their, their uncles and their, their, their grandparents and their um, great-grandparents were, were all criminals and, and had uh, criminal records or had you know, poor character. And you, f and you see their kids today, with very few exceptions. Their, their kids are, um, have got criminal histories and they live in the wrong side of town and the, you know, the usual walk-up you know, cold water tenement flat and housing commission zones. And it just goes on and on and on. I think you're born into it more so than, than whether you can be rehabilitated. That's another, I think that's another uh, question uh, and perhaps another... Um, um, debate but uh, most of the crooks I saw um, came from really really bad families and uh, I look at myself too and my family was was pretty dodgy and my my my, my um, uncle was a painter and docker an extraordinarily good painter and docker he used to knock off the containers and empty empty them and um, share all the, all the spoils around um, and I guess I'm an exception to that but uh, and my brother is too and my two sisters are we just seem to find something more in, our, in my mother we, we knew from an early age what the right side of the street was. and um, But most of the time, and, and, the, and the cousins and the people around us were on the other side of the street and they, were, they chose that path. So I think it's a little bit deeper than that as to whether it is is like that. I, I, think, I do really believe that uh, you're born into it and you, and you run with it. And Unless you can break out of it or that, unless there's a very strong influence, and in my case, my mother, um, then you're on that same road, uh, same side of the street at least. And when we're talking about the justice system, I really feel like I, I have to out one of our members of our audience because we will in a minute talk about um, 
the NCA bombing, and uh, many of you would be aware that uh, Geoffrey Bowen, a, a West Australian police officer, was blown up um, in Adelaide. Uh, Colin worked on that, and uh, Geoffrey's wife is in the audience. And so I feel like when we're talking about justice, I, we should really talk about Jeff Bowen and your, um, Colin, your infiltration of, of that story, just so it gets it out, because I can feel Jane there, and I just, you know, I always want to go and give you a hug, because, you know, your husband did die, and she's now married a very ugly, another copper. Um, <laughs> so she didn't learn a lesson. Um, but I really feel like there's something that, that, that maybe you can just uh, talk about, Jeffrey, up front so I can sort of move on from there. Yeah, Jeffrey, um, Jeffrey was a, a very decent man, and most, most cops are, and a great many of them are, and, and Jeffrey was right up there amongst those. And he was a team leader um, in Adelaide and on secondment from WA, one of WA's finest. And he he was there doing his job, and he came up across came up against a man I can't name, because it, it's an ongoing atrocity in in legal terms. It's it's just a nonsense. But anyway, d despite my occasional phone call to Adelaide, um, I, I can't nothing gets done, and I can't name him. But this particular fellow that I call in my book Alfonso I had a real issue with Jeffrey's diligence and hard working nature, and. Uh, want to close him down as a criminal and he was a bloody bad criminal and um, anyway it, it became a little bit personal and uh, that happens in the life of de a detective when you you head on with these people and and he um, he had some issues they had and they shared issues and uh, eventually um, because of s something that was said and done and again I can't say too much but um, Next thing we know, the bomb went off in Adelaide and one of the worst crimes this country's ever seen. And um, for Michael's understanding of the crime, it's like the bomb going off in the FBI building um, in, a, in, in you know, a major city in America like the United States. It was States. really the first time that terrorism visited upon our shores. I think so. and it's, it was, uh, uh, I guess there's Russell Street bombing and that's our Victorian equivalent, and then there's the NCA, and they're the, they're the two great assaults on our law enforcement agencies in this country. And of course, you've got to close that down. You've got to solve it, no matter what. The, the public expect it and demand it, and the law enforcement needs to solve it for all sorts of issues, not just morale, but all sorts of issues. Um, and, but we never did this on this occasion. No, uh, Russell Street, right? Russell Street, Street, oh yeah, the Monogue brothers are, are still doing time. Right. Russell Street was, was, uh, was sorted. Wall Street wasn't. Um, it went to trial, and uh, I was on that task force too. And um, but we lost the key witness to that one. But that's so it's it's solved. If if you if you want to ask me who did it, I'll tell you off the microphone. And well, I'm happy it's solved. But anyway, um, this this wasn't in the NCA bombing uh, issue, and um, I think that ripped it uh, the broader community of Australians, and particularly um, WA's and and um, the people of South Australia. So no justice. Well, we did get uh, Mr. Alfonso uh, for other issues and put him away for a long, long time. But um, and the uh, Wall Street Boys too, I guess. They yeah, on other issues and armed robberies and secondary crimes, but put him away for a long, long time. But um, sadly, um, I, I can't discuss the matter any further. Michael, is Lincoln Perry you? Um, <clears throat> if I were slightly taller, tougher. <laughs> 
<laughs> stronger, better looking, funnier, and in all ways more competent than yes, absolutely. <laughs> I saw him as soon as I saw you. We're the, uh, we're, we're the same person with those <laughs> mild differences. Um, where do you get him from? You know, Lincoln, um, actually, it, he, his progression through four novels has been um, interesting to me and entirely, in many ways, out of my control. I'm a firm believer that the subconscious understands more of what uh, should be in the book than the conscious. And um, if you look at the progression of the series, Lincoln opens as kind of the, the classic um, fictional wisecracking American uh, PI. And, and by the end, um, by the fourth book of the series, he's um, a good deal more damaged. And, and I think that came apart um, because came about because I wanted to honor the um, events of the previous books. I feel that's mm. necessary in good fiction. If you're going to try and sustain a character, you can't pretend that what you put him through earlier in his life vanished without impact. Um, that's not good fiction. That's not reality-based. And uh, The Silent Hour is really my attempt to write a character study of um, the detective writ large. Um, through through Lincoln's eyes, um, it's interesting to to hear Colin talk about these unsolved cases, and um, you, you can hear the passion in, in his voice um, when he speaks about the need to solve them. The Silent Hour involves uh, several detectives working on an unsolved case, and I was very interested in the way those cases affect um, detectives. I've worked with a good number of, of police detectives um, and, and then private detectives. And there's a line in the book, I, I'm, I'm going to butcher my own line, but um, <laughs> it says something to the effect of uh, every detective referring to an unsolved case, every detective has their white whale. And then Lincoln says, um, he wonders what happens when you look up long enough to see that the seas are teeming with white whales. And that was really the essence of the story to me. I wanted to look at the way an unsolved case, um, a perceived failure by the detectives, um, by different detectives, mm. would, uh, would hit them emotionally. And um, I'm very interested in, I know some, some tremendous detectives, uh, really good um, um, men and women at the work whose personal lives are in total disarray. Um, they're alcoholics. They've been through, you know, multiple marriages. They cannot keep their personal life together, but they can handle the work in, in a really fantastic way. Sounds like journos too. Yeah, and then <laughs> uh, exactly. Like um, and then I know uh, detectives who uh, go the exact opposite way. And Joe Pritchard, who's Lincoln's partner in the series, um, is a, an extremely good detective, but he's very by the book. Um, he doesn't drink. He keeps his personal life in, in firm order. And um, in my experience, it seems, it seems like they uh, tend to go one way or the other, and that doesn't surprise me. Uh, jur journalism is a good comparison. It's an incredibly high-stress job, and often without fruition or the desired fruition. Um, you know, you, you might put someone uh, behind bars for a, a number of years, but if it's not necessarily the sentence or the crime that you set out to... Uh, the score you set out to, to see settled up, that can be very emotionally uh, mm -hmm. difficult, certainly. 
Did you base it on anything? Like, did you, or does it just all come out of this crazy, mixed up mind of yours? It, most of it comes out of my crazy, demented mind. Um, no, <laughs> I, I, I definitely, uh, I, you know, I based it some on, on my personal experience. Um, I, I've worked a couple cases that child custody and uh, one wrongful death um, involving a, a three-year-old child who um, was killed by incredibly um, negligent and just terrible parents. Um, that one was emotionally haunting uh, to me. I have family who are um, with police and law enforcement in Cleveland, and I've always grown up around those sort of stories, and I'm interested to see, um, you know, who handles the, uh, the emotional damage of the work in what way. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was important to, um, to really look at that as a character study. The, the Silent Hour is a book in which I'm very unconcerned with plot compared to most of my stuff. And that's been a disappointment to some readers, and it's, it's been um, you know, evidently a delight to some readers, but it, it really has split the, the audience camp, I think. Do you have people email you and say, come on, you've let us down, Michael? I have people email me and, and say, uh, yes, absolutely. You know, um, one, one woman sent me an email and said, if, if uh, you had written this book uh, you know, as a more cheerful crime novel, it, it would have really been great. And I thought, <laughs> you know, there are those writers out there. And I know that there are th those audiences um, are out there. And it's, it's great to read a book, um, a crime novel that's nothing but but an escape and fun, and, and um, I understand that. But again, I talk about the dealing with the weight of, of the impact um, that these detectives go through. I felt I had to honor that. So um, if I let some people down along the way, hopefully it's gotten a very good response from the people I know in law enforcement, and that matters deeply to me. So, What about you, Colin? Did your job mix you up emotionally? Are you uh, a broken, or did you become a broken man? Uh, as a result of your time infiltrating the mafia? Um, no, I think I came out of it all right. It was, a, it was a hard two years living with the Italians and running with them and, and ingratiating yourself with them and obviously at the end of it, um, towards the end of it, buying drugs, etc., etc., mm. you know, bringing them down and sending them away for long jail sentences. But... Um, I think what troubled me most of all uh, in, in all of that when you are undercover and for the, you know, the audience's information, um, towards the end of my career I stupidly went undercover with the Mafia in Griffith and spent two years with them um, and I was the wrong person to do the job because of my profile in the years before that I was too well known but I fell into it and thank God um, something went right for two years and no one, no one knew it was me. But um, what comes out of all of that is your friendships and you can't help but be if, to be involved undercover with two, two years with high-level mafiosi um, and, and not get on with some of them. Some of them I thought they were just absolute rats. Um, and I tolerated them and smiled and nodded and, and had dinner and um, organised drug deals with them and ticked them off and you're in the bin, mate, and your day will come. But others I, I genuinely liked and I think that took a great toll on me and um, the godfather, godfather at the time, Antonio Romeo, I liked him enormously, and he and I were on that same level, and um, I brought him down. And, um, and was there retribution from him to you for that? Yeah, or there did was. Did he just know that the rules were there? And there was he expected lost? to be, and uh, I lived with that for quite a long time. But he got an early release, which has now been removed from our um, sentencing system in Melbourne; no longer exists. But 
or in Victoria, but uh, he was one of the ones that got early release and only got out after after eight years of what could have been or should have been a 20-year sentence. Um, and he was murdered by his own lot for for allowing me to infiltrate the organisation. So that mm. took the problem away from, from me. And uh, But that first eight years was a bit of a worry. Do you fear at all that, uh, that some of those blokes... Because I read, you know, how you sat in the courtroom when they... Um, when many of them were sentenced mm. with a, a, a real sense that you'd done your job. Mm. But they might not have finished theirs yet. Yeah, I, I guess, and I, I am reminded occasionally um, in events like this of some, of some of the, you know, the, the possibilities down the track, but maybe I'm naive, but, it, you know, they, they've had uh, more than eight years to have a go at me now and I'm, I'm writing now and um, getting away with it and telling yarns about them and, I mean, if they're going to get me, they would have got me... Yeah, before I got to court or just after, so I'm pretty relaxed about that. Maybe you think it's stu being stupid, but, you know, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with it. The mafia still exists in Australia? Um, completely and utterly, and if anybody tells you otherwise, you're looking at a fool. And we'd be naive to think that it doesn't stretch here to Perth. Um, yeah, it completely. Um, the Eastern Seaboard, certainly, um, absolutely, and Griffith is, is the headquarters, and there's no front door that says Mafia Headquarters written on it, but <laughs> it's certainly the headquarters of the serious Mafia, the Mafia that you and I, or certainly yourselves, would never get to see. They're not the showy ones that walk around lying on streets sucking on a cigar, calling themselves Mick Gatto. That's not the Mafia. Um, the ones that we're talking about, you never get to, to hear about or see. Um, Sydney, yes. Melbourne, absolutely. Um, Perth. Um, certainly, and Adelaide, absolutely. I'm interested in both your thoughts on, on this whole idea about glamorising crime. I don't know, Michael, if you know, but one of our highest rating programs over the last three years has been a series about... It's called Underbelly, which mm. is um, various different uh, scenarios in our criminal history. There's another one about to go to air on... Like, all on the Nine Network, mind you, and doing beautifully. They rape <laughs> unbelievably well. But they do make movie stars out of, out of criminals. What that's, do you, what that's do you think about that? That's absolutely been an issue in, in the States too, going back um, you know, 30 years now when Francis Ford Coppola made the Godfather trilogy. Mm. Um, the uh, detectives who were working, uh, much like Colin, undercover um, in the years after that found that the uh, mafia <laughs> players would actually, they'd quote the movie. Mm. Um, they tried to, to inhabit the role. Um, and then we had in, in HBO, uh, the, the series Sopranos. Um, again, they, they enjoy the glamour um, that comes with it, at least a certain level of, of uh, those characters do. Um, there, there's certainly a risk to glamorizing crime. I think it's always been there. Though. There's a fascination with crime that you know, we, we can take back through hundreds of years of fiction, um, and, and it boils down. We can take it back thousands of years. We can take it back to the Greeks. It's the idea of good versus evil. Um, that, that fascinates the audience. It fascinates all of us, I think, on some level. Um, the worry about, about glamorizing it... Um, I think to me would be an issue of um, if, if, if it's encouraging, if, if it creates any sort of sympathy um, or makes, you know, popular figures, heroic figures out, out of these 
um, people who are committing really reprehensible acts, and I think that would be tremendously damaging. I don't feel that that's the situation in the States. Colin might disagree here. I think that has happened here, Colin. Yeah, I think that the Mick Gattos of this world are now seen as, uh, as glamorous mm. folk rather than, you know, clearly cold-blooded killers. Yeah. And, um, and there are, there are not, obviously there are people in Western Australia, given this is a podcast who I'm not going to continue to name, <laughs> but, you know, there are folk here who drive around in their flash cars and basically give the bird to the police. It must be very difficult being I've got police. a s- slightly different point of view on, on that to Michael. I, and I agree with his first part there, and um, but I, I even take it back to, say, the 1930s. America fell in love with the mafioso and that image of mafia um, with um, the, in, the, in the 30s with Public Enemy. Prohibition days, with, particularly. With yeah. Al, Al Capone, and they were mm-hmm. making movies. Every week there was a new mafioso or gangster or Public right. Enemy number one type movie in the 30s and 40s. And they embraced their... That was, it's part of, part of your culture. I mean, crime yeah. is part of your culture. And if you need, if you you know, if you um, doubt that, you've only got to walk down your street and you'll see it. It's it's, it's part part of our everyday culture. Americans grabbed it, you know, seventy years ago and popularised it. The Sopranos came much later, of course, and Francis Ford Coppola. Um, I've been to Colleoni in uh, Sicily many times, and it's they just are so disappointed with Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzza for putting him on the map for the wrong reason. This right. cute little town in in the middle of Sicily. However. When you do look at the glamour side of it, which is Michael's comment, I, I agree completely, um, it, it only tends to pump the tyres up or, or, or make big men out of wannabes. Right. The real mafioso, the real problem is the guy that you'll never see, as I said before, who's probably my age or 60 or 65. Or, you know, he's five foot six, he's squat, little fingers, he, uh, bewhiskered, and he's, and he's tending his he's massive... Um, Great vineyard in Griffith, and he's sorting out the next importation of cocaine, or the death of somebody in the chain. Um, they're not the they're not the ones that get off on the image of mm-hmm. the soprano that the, that the Sopranos create. The wannabes walk down the street and make themselves swagger a bit more than, than others because of that. But the real problem is the ones you never see. So I guess, uh, but it doesn't help the situation and, uh, and therefore I agree with what you're saying. It's, it's pumping up the tyres of dills and, and it's dangerous. I'd, I'd say in the, uh, in the States you're, you're absolutely correct um, when you reference the 30s. The, the big difference that I see in that period is um, that was the Depression. Um, banks were collapsing. People had, the average American citizen had lost trust in their government and particularly in their banks. And so when a John Dillinger robbed a bank, they viewed it almost, it, he, he was almost viewed as a champion of the people in that moment because he was striking against the very institution that had damaged them. Um, I don't see that sort of perception right now in the States. So I think no, I think the States have gone through it. And, um, mm-hmm. But Australia is just discovering it, that's my point. You know, okay. Underbelly is, just, is, is yeah. really 70 years late, later than what was going on in the 30s in the, in the States. We're just discovering the underbelly fascination of crime and the bling and the big cigars and the tough guy wannabes. Can I ask you a question then? God, don't they have sex? (laughs) Anyways. Can I ask one question real quick? Of of Colin. Um, You're you're speaking of McAllen. I see one of your books carries a a blurb, an endorsement. Mm. from. How do you feel about that? Um, Well, you've got to, you know yourself, you've got to market a book and there's so many books out there on the shelf. 
And when I was... Um, that's the red one here, Infiltration. It was interesting. I, it's published by Melbourne University Press, which you may know is a very conservative old publishing house of Australia and one of the finest. And, but they had not, never done a crime genre book or fiction. And my first two was crime and then fiction. Um, and they came to me and said, OK, now we need something to, to promote it. And what normally happens in the world of publishing and their, their autobiographical and text and you know, some serious stuff... They said, we, we need something to put on there. We thought we'd go across and get a criminologist from the, across the road at Melbourne University who could put something on there for you. And I said, oh, God, when, when, when are we going to press? And when are we printing? And, he, and she said, uh, the publisher said, oh, in three days' time. So I said, can you give it to me for three days? I don't know if I want to put John Smith, criminologist, Melbourne University, thinks it's a good read. <laughs> and I had great troubles with that, with that. I said, give me three days and I'll come back with something. So I went home and the old lateral thinking came out and I thought, and, and it was, we'd had, this was, uh, I wrote this two years ago, this is the tail end of Underbelly One and of course Mick Gatto was a big, you know, big name in, in, nationally because of that series. I know Mick Gatto, I've known him since I was a, a very, very young green detective. Um, I didn't kick his ass around Melbourne because I, I never focused on him, he was not involved in what I was working on. Um, so but you but can see he was, he was involved in some other pretty shifty stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. But I never worked on him and there's so many crooks you can't work on everybody. And I thought, laterally, I thought, hang on, he's got a big big name now out of Underbelly. So I went down to Ligon Street looking for him <laughs> and I hadn't seen him for 10 years since I took off my suit. And there he was sitting in his usual spot in one of his cafes with his cigars and, you know, okay... So I sat down with him and he looked up. He said, my God, I haven't seen you for a long, long time. What are you doing? I said, I've just written a manuscript. There it is. Would you like to read it? Why? I said, well, if you read it and have an opinion with it, I'll stick it on the front cover for marketing. I took it back to MUP that, um, at the end of that day and, and told them and they just went into think tank mode and had to have a, a board meeting about it and shit themselves. <laughs> The CEO was called in and all the directors and everybody <laughs> from the faculty of law coming and they sat around and just postulated for a whole 24 hours, how can we do this? And I said, well, if you want to market the book and that's, you know, that's all I can come up with. Anyway, in the end, it, it, it is uh, what it is and it, it just, he says, I couldn't put it down, great Mick Gatto. Do you think that we overplay then in Australia? How dangerous? You know, every night on our news, not nine news, those other uh, tabloid TVs, um, they are saying how dangerous our streets are. Be careful. Don't go out. Don't let your kid walk up to the primary school and, and have a play around with his or her mates because they might be snatched off the street. There are little old ladies living in Melville who are frightened to go outside their house because they hear on some of the, the radio stations, particularly some of the talkback radio, that's mm. all about how dangerous it is out there. And actually, you know what? It's, I, wonder whether, I wonder whether it is. As a mother, I kind of think that the chances of my kids getting snatched off the street is probably zero. They're, they're certainly not going to get into an armed gunfight with somebody. Um, and so... That, are we overplaying that, do you think? I don't know. I don't think your, your child's going to get snatched off the street. But whether the child gets a smack in the mouth um, is a different thing. I got asked to write a piece for the, the Age and Sydney Morning Herald six, a 
six or four months ago, zero tolerance. And what I was saying was what I was also saying ten minutes earlier, the quality of life on the street. I think we do have a, an issue here with street violence, um, just petty stuff that really does impact on the individuals because most individuals w don't become part of an armed robbery or a murder or a homicide or something very, very serious at the top end of crime. Most of us and most sitting here today, your only impact on crime would be at a very, very low street level. You know, somebody might assault you or somebody might have a go at you or somebody might uh, graffiti your house or smash your window or scratch your car or things like that. But how often does that actually happen is my point. You know, in this room, who has been a victim of crime? Okay, so a third. Mm, it's 15 out of about 45, 50. Um, and this is Perth too because let me tell you, you're pretty lucky compared to... I live in um, the central di uh, business district of Melbourne and it's a jungle. Um, I've got a building, uh, without getting into exactly where it is, but I've got a building that is completely covered in graffiti. Uh, windows um, smashed... Uh, they don't know that the guy lives in there. There used to be a cop and probably might have a handgun. You know, the, the imagination of how people think. They just know me as somebody else that lives there and the next guy, next guy. And, and you know, virtually every place, every shop front, every house in my um, small zone, and you could say 20 streets, has been touched by graffiti or had s some impact with this level of crime we're talking about, this petty, annoying street-level crime. It's interesting, that reminds me of uh, New York in the late 80s, early 90s, they developed this, uh, it goes back a little bit before that, but the broken windows theory of policing, yeah. which um, you know, stated that those early entry points, graffiti, broken windows, a lack of care in the community, eventually, they, they were gateways to more serious crime. Um, and the crime rate in New York was dramatically reduced when they attempted to clean up those issues which people were saying, well, you know, these are petty crimes. We well, look at what Giuliano, Rudy I Giuliano zero did. To, right? He did, he's champion zero tolerance in the early Cleaning 90s. Cleaning up the subways. And yeah, and I, I went to New York in early 80s and again late 80s and that was a jungle. That was mad. And then I went again in the early 90s and the late 90s, or oh, a couple of times since, and it is one of the most pleasant cities in the world. It's a fantastic big city to move around. And what that man did is exemplary. Um, and I think we've, we, need, we, sh we need a few politicians um, like him that have got the, f you know, the fibre, the political fibre to have a go. Keep, keep him to the, uh, the mayoral role then. Michael, who did you read? Do you, do you read crime novels or, um, or do you read poetry? Um, you know, I, I really read a little bit of everything. I started reading crime fiction predominantly. Um, the longer I've, I've worked in the genre, the less of it I've read. I, I think that... Um, you know, makes some level of sense. Um, if, if you're a landscaper for your, your day job to make a living, I don't know that gardening would be your hobby. Um, so <laughs> it becomes harder to read crime fiction for me now because, mm -hmm. you know, I spend my day immersed in it. Um, so I still read, maybe, you know, 15 or 20 crime novels a year, but I read a lot of nonfiction and, and literary fiction. So were you one of those pointy heads at school that just was an A in English and just... Uh, if if I ever got an A, it was in English, um, and and that was probably the one. Uh, I was, I was not the uh, the, the diligent student. So, 
Could I ask uh, Michael, just extending on that answer, what, what is your favourite all-time private investigator um, book? Uh, and I'll open it by saying mine is um, Lawrence Block and Matt Scudder. Lawrence Block, uh, A Million Ways to Die and When the Sacred Gin Mill Closes, I think are just exceptional examples of the form. Um, at a contemporary level, um, Dennis Lehane combines uh, a really good sense of... Um, you know, suspense and thrills and all of the things you want in, in a genre novel, but he combines that with a level of, of moral inquiry and, and um, commentary on, on the social condition that I think is exceptional. Uh, George Pelicanos is terrific. Uh, Michael Connolly is very good. Mm -hmm. And then going back a few years, um, many years, um, Raymond Chandler and Ross MacDonald mm. were, were huge influences. Robert B. Parker and he's Spencer. Robert character. B. Parker, yes, may he rest in peace. Uh, mm. Just lost him a few months ago. Um, his early his early stuff was, was influential. Um, then he got to the point where he, he was writing apparently three books a year and I couldn't keep up anymore. But uh, yeah, his early stuff, certainly. I've got one last question for you both. I, um, I My husband's been a crime reporter for 20 years in this town. He's since moved to be a spin doctor, he's gone to the other side, but he always reckons that after 20 years uh, uh, reporting crime, he could commit the perfect murder mm. because he's seen it from all sides. Michael, could you and how would you do it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd have Colin do it for me. <laughs> I think you always default to someone uh, of greater experience and skill, so uh, I'd have Colin. <laughs> Um, could you, Colin? I don't know. Um, is there such it's a fascinating thing? subject, though, isn't it? It's a great dinner table chat. But, uh, I think we both, uh, not to interrupt you, but I think we both have so much respect for the quality of uh, detectives out there in law enforcement that I, I, I don't know that I'd want to try. <laughs> because the trouble is when you did it, you'd have the, uh, the CSI crew from Miami onto it. And <laughs> they would have it investigated by the first uh, ad break. Um, <laughs> They'd have me sorted out uh, by the second ad break. They'd work out my, uh, my co-offender, Michael, in the third ad, bra ad break right. and we'd be charged by the, you know, the 58th minute. And, uh, it would we'd turn out caught. you left a toenail clipping behind and the whole thing would be shot. <laughs> He'd get to kiss somebody along the way too. Let me give you the tip. Um, you say there, though, that you do have enormous respect for, for police departments. Of course, yeah. Do um, you? Do you as well? Yeah, I, I do. Um, for the detective and the uniform fellow. The, the fellow on the van, the van crew, is, I guess is, is really the, the unsung hero out there, as I firmly believe is the ambulance. Yeah. Uh, those two are everything to, this, to our community. And uh, without that uniform, whether it's an ambo or, or a blue uniform. Can I, can I read a little something into that answer? And does it suggest that the uh, administrative... Branch is not so uh, esteemed. <laughs> well, if you if you read infiltration, I'll take a swipe every second page. Yeah, um. yeah. I mean that, that is a question. I mean we could go on for hours here, but it, you know that is a question that I I, I had for you was: Do mm. you think that police forces in Australia are still rotten? Rotten? Um, certainly not. They're cleaner than they've ever been. Certainly in in my life, and uh, I remember as a young fellow that. Um, the bad stories of the Fitzgerald Royal Commission in the 70s and in Queensland, Jack Herbert and the bag man, they were pretty bad back then, but they were, they were bad and, and corrupt over $10 notes. I mean, for God's sake. Um, 
if you look at uh, the, the stuff of Roger Rogerson and all that era of the 80s and what you're going to see, I think, again, yeah. uh, Underbelly coming up, uh, um, that was pretty bad too. But I think nowadays it's, it's been cleaned up a lot and we've moved forward from the 70s and 80s to a, a fairly squeaky clean police department around, around Australia. I'm not here to promote them. I have little time for the management of the police departments and, and I don't mind saying that. I wonder what, half the time whether they're politicians and not and instead of administrators, and I and I worry particularly in my own home state how our very very senior police are, um, uh, are almost like adornments to the premier every time an announcement's got to be made. He's got a bit of braid on his left or a bit of braid on his right, um, as if he's going to butt this bolsters up the political announcement of the day, and that troubles me enormously because when I first joined, as I would say, um, when Phil. In the audience first joined, you never you never ever heard of the cops. You never heard of the the administrators. You just you just if there was a knock on the door, it was a uniform copper, and that was enough to make you realise you know what's going on. Um, now it's, they're on the TV every night. The highest ranking police spinning, and that worries me enormously. That's not corrupt. I just don't think it's proper. What's next for you both? Final question. I promise, Michael. Um, I've got a book coming out in June. Alan and Unwin will be publishing it here. And it's still a crime novel at its core. I'm going in a little bit of a different direction as well. So uh, wow. definitely Tell a departure us. from the series. I, I would rather you, you read the book. <laughs> I.e. buy the book. Um, <laughs> and you, Colin? Yeah, I've just put to bed uh, book three, which comes out in May. It's called Sunflower. And it's, uh, it's a departure for me. I've got a five-book deal with MUP. Book four and five are crime. But this, book three is about uh, arguably Australia's longest-serving foot soldier in World War I. In the Great War, 1,527 nights in the trenches. Wow. Um, across every battlefield. And a story I've been writing since 1996 and it's coming out as Sunflower. Um, it's treated as fiction because I put dialogue in, into the characters' mouths again because they're all well gone. But it's a story of my grandfather. Hmm. And uh, a great man and an inspiration to me. Sentimental old fool that you are. <laughs> that brings us this session uh, to a close. It has been an absolute joy. Please put your hands together. Thanks, Dixie. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recorded at the 2010 Perth Writers' Festival. If you'd like to hear other sessions from the festival, go to abc.net.au slash perth slash writersfestival.